Welcome to the podcast of ideas from the Institute of Ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. In this edition, David Bowden talks about the aftermath to the attack on Charlie Hebdo. After public demonstrations and high-sounding comments from politicians in support of free expression, can we expect more support for free speech? Or, as the reaction to the apparent demise of Page 3 suggested this week, is our censorious culture too heavily ingrained? Justine Bryan, director of the Debating Matters competition, talks about the forthcoming regional finals and the topics that students will be debating. And Jeff Kidder explains why Greece's forthcoming general election matters to everyone in Europe. The most widely covered news story of the past month has been the attack on the offices of French satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo on 7th of January. 11 members of the magazine's staff including a number of famous cartoonists, were killed. Other related attacks followed, including one on a kosher supermarket in which four people were murdered. Massive demonstrations in support of the magazine followed, and the following edition had a print run of 5 million rather than the usual 60,000. Is the reaction to the attack a watershed for press freedom, or does it merely highlight how feeble our defence of free expression is today? To discuss this, I'm joined by David Bowden, the Institute's Editorial Press and Special Projects Manager, and a columnist for Spiked and Ideas Tap. So, David, you must have been impressed by the positive reaction of ordinary people to the attack. Yeah, I think the initial response was encouraging. I think even though the attacks were um, smaller in scale and less indiscriminately targeted than some of the other more famous or equally famous terrorist atrocities, such as 9-11, 7-7, Madrid bombings, Bali, um, in many ways they were just as horrifying um, in that they targeted a magazine um, and not just any magazine, um, but one that was very much in the kind of enlightenment traditions of uh, blasphemy and irreverence and a lack of respect for religion. So I think that it was very heartening that many people's initial reaction was to rally around the dead journalists under the banner of Je suis Charlie, um, putting aside any kind of particular questions they might have had about the content of the magazine, most of which people weren't familiar with in favour of a kind of general revulsion that people could be killed simply for saying, drawing or publishing materials that others deemed offensive. And that, of course, that their reaction um, to the next issue was that they wanted to, to read this for themselves, to have the ability to, to make their own mind up and to have a show of strength. So I think putting aside the, the kind of sickening and horrifying reasons um, why people were moved to show solidarity. I think that the fact that that was their spontaneous public reaction, I think, was actually kind of quite inspiring. I think unlike a lot of previous reactions to terrorist atrocities, which are, have generally been a kind of sort of sense of collective mourning or kind of sort of therapeutic, this sort of felt like a, a stand for a particular value that people saw as being under attack. Yeah, and uh, there were a lot of fine words from politicians after the attack as well in terms of defending free expression. But do you think that was backed up in practice? Well, the, I think it was... My initial reaction to that was that there was something at least positive that Western politicians and politicians from across the world 
wanted to join in us to protest like this. So they wanted to make a statement along the lines um, of that we do support free expression. Obviously, there was a kind of initial cynical reaction that, you know, why have we invited the Saudis? Why have we invited various other groups from over there who um, clamped down on free expression? There was obviously a, a Saudi Arabian blogger who has been flogged um, the same weekend the uh, protests were taking place. Obviously, I think what was more striking for me was that it was also people were overlooking some of the attacks on free press freedom that was employed by many of the western politicians there i mean there was a fantastic private eye cover um, which had the jessery charlatan with the pictures of these politicians all of whom have engaged in various different ways on attacks on press freedom when you you look at the the leveson inquiry that cameron has instituted uh, in france there's already been a despite all of the grand um talk of um, defending free speech people have already started clamping down on people who have tweeted offensive comments about um, the Hebdo killing. So I think that um, although there's something initially inspiring, the kind of political reaction suggests that um, it's going to be more of the same in terms of free expression. Yeah, I mean, the big story this week has been the uh, the apparent demise and then apparent resurrection of page three. Um, so what does that tell us about the state of press freedom at the, at the moment? It doesn't seem to be particularly alive and well, even beyond politicians. Well, yeah, the the page three example was uh, interesting because obviously there's been a campaign against um, trying to ask the Sun to voluntarily get rid of this uh, material for a long time, you know, for various different reasons that it's viewed as being degrading to to women, that it kind of it, it adds to a um, a culture of a lack of seriousness around the news, any number of different activities. Now, the fact that the Sun decided not to publish page three was hailed initially as a as a great victory. People were willing to celebrate this as a, as a um, a victory over the sun um, but then pe- when people became challenged on that to say that actually you're trying to police offensive materials they would turn around and say well it wasn't really us who did it so there was a kind of lack of I think responsibility for actually trying to tackle what was the kind of r- real genuine question about the sun should the sun have the right to publish what it uh, what it feels like if you don't like that then you don't have to buy the sun it's highly unlikely that anyone who is involved in these protests um, or these campaigns actually buys the sun. And in ways, you were quite heartened by the fact that the sun was willing to, to take a stand and bring it back to, it seemed like, almost to, to spite people. That seemed to me a, a kind of great symbol of a newspaper um, taking a stance for publishing what it wants to publish and not just based around what other people deem to be acceptable. And so in, in terms of this, this broader um, climate, it seems to be that there's... Uh, a real sense that if you're offended by something, and it doesn't really matter what, I mean, it could be Charlie Hebdo, it could be Robin Thicke's, you know, number one best-selling song or, or, or whatever, that you know, you've got kind of got a, a right now to ask for that not to, to, to be played or not to appear. So how do we tackle that? How do we ta- tackle this culture of offence? Well, I think the first shift you have to make, it's interesting that people, there is a kind of uh, more general kind of popular attack on religious offence so that when people sort of say I'm offended because this upsets my religion people are more willing to say kind of like how the Hebdo journalists were that this is you know this is our right to 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 make a stand against it these are kind of hard-won freedoms I think what's difficult now in terms of free speech particularly in the west is that it's the assumption that speech is actually harmful to you it's not just that it offends your sensibilities because people understand that seems a bit old hat but actually that it it causes genuine real harms to people real traumas to people i mean that's the discussion that goes on around student unions that robin thick's 
song is not just offensive, but that it contributes to something which is defined as rape culture, which is not very well defined, but there's a assumed to be a spectrum between somebody having uh, a, a kind of silly gratuitous pop song to actual events happening. And I think that that's the kind of religion that really needs to be challenged and, and taken up in terms of free speech. I think actually what I found most interesting since the thing is I've been having lots of arguments with people about about free speech and um, discussion about what is offensive or not, whether Hebdar is racist, some people term it to be, um, what the limits are of offence, what the kind of purpose of satire is, what uh, the nature of expression is. I think the fact that I'm actually having those discussions is a, is a victory for free speech in a certain way, because I'm, you're actually discussing the content of things. Um, it's much more harmful when you're discussing the rate of something to be published in the in the first place. Um, so I'd much rather be discussing the content of certain things, whether I actually agree with them, whether I sign up to them, whether they should be prevented from other people. I think it's always the focus on other people. It's you know, whether the it's the assumptions about what sun readers think about women because they look at page three. It's the assumption um, of how Muslims will respond if they are if if someone else out there in the world publishes something that they don't like. I think that that's the kind of reaction you have to try and kick against first of all and just establish a, a basic principle of the right to, to say or to think or to express what you think on a topic. You can get challenged on that but your actual right to do it shouldn't be the main focus of the discussion. Okay well we'll be uh, kicking against these things and challenging people plenty of times in the future on this podcast. Thanks very much David. So as part of this podcast, we're going to be talking about events and activities that the Institute of Ideas is up to. So this week, I'm joined by the director of the Institute's Debating Matters competition, Justine Bryan. Hi, Justine. Hi. For those who don't know, can you explain a little bit about what Debating Matters is and how it works? Sure. So we were established by the Institute of Ideas about 12 years ago now uh, with the explicit purpose of prioritising content and ideas over style uh, in schools debating. Uh, there are lots of debating competitions out there in the UK. Uh, I think what distinguishes ours, as I say, is that we're less interested in polished uh, public speaking performances and much more interested in a demonstration that the students have got to grips with some very difficult social, political and ethical issues. Okay, so this week you've published the topics for the next uh, phase of the competition. Could you Give us some examples of the things that the school students will be debating. Yeah, sure. So the competition runs all year through the school term and we're just about to start our spring regional finals running from late Feb to end of April. Uh, And we've got eight debates for the uh, teams across the UK to tackle. We're repeating a couple of uh, really interesting ones, one on um, three-parent babies, uh, whether we should embrace the advent of three-parent IVF. That's been in the news quite a lot recently. Uh, And also a very complicated one on uh, humanitarian intervention. Western humanitarian intervention is a valid tool of foreign policy, uh, goes the debate motion. But we're very on the ball with some other issues, Um, one on voting, whether voting should be compulsory in the UK, whether that would re-engage the electorate. Very topical in the light of uh, Charlie Hebdo, um, an issue, uh, a debate on offence with the motion, nobody has the right to not be offended. So the next phase of the competition is the regional final, so uh, how many schools are involved in that and where have they come from? Right, so in the autumn we started with 288 schools, we've whittled that down over 72 events to just 72 schools now, so 72 schools from 
Orkney down to um, Bodmin uh, and everywhere in between. One of the interesting things about the DM format is the role of adult judges. Can you explain a bit about that? I've done a bit of this uh, style of judging. It's hard work but fascinating. Can you explain a bit more about the role of the the judges in the competition? Sure. Well, because we put an emphasis on um, the content of what students are saying, they need to really be tested um, to demonstrate they have some depth of understanding on each of these issues and the way we do that is by the uh, addition of a panel of adult judges so for every single debate we do the student debaters will face three judges who are listening to what they're arguing in their opening speeches but will then put them under pressure to demonstrate that beyond their opening speeches they actually have some depth of knowledge of the issues and the judges do that by posing them questions challenging them to go further than they've uh, explained in their in their pre-prepared speeches uh, and really to think on their feet and I think a test of their depth of understanding is whether they can dig deep for all the reading and research they've done to deal with on-the-spot questioning and the judges don't give any truck for the students being 16 to 18 they treat them uh, like young adults which they are and expect to engage in an adult debate with them. From the point of view of our listeners how could they get involved in the competition, I suppose encouraging their local schools to get involved, but maybe get involved as judges as well? Yeah, so uh, newcomers always welcome. Uh, we always need new schools. Uh, we're oversubscribed every single year, um, but schools uh, sometimes don't do the competition, which means there are always spaces for uh, new schools to come on board. Uh, and obviously in the future we'd like to expand the competition, and we're quite happy with its size in the UK at the moment. Uh, in addition to all the international work we're doing. Uh, And we always need judges. We think we probably use about 700 individuals over the course of a competition year um, to judge at all of our events. And if you're interested in taking part in debating matters, taking part in some of these debates with young adults and people that are probably going to lead the world uh, in the future, then we'd like to hear from you. Um, And I also know that outside of the competition itself, a lot of schools have... Yeah, inspired by the format, have have started to use that in local debating competitions and events as well. Yeah, so we are just generally interested in encouraging uh, schools debating. As I say, uh, schools debating already has a long tradition in the UK. We're obviously very keen on our format because of the pressure it puts on the, the students to um, think about the issues and not just how they present uh, words. Uh, as, as I say, uh, it's beyond uh, mirroration. Um, and we produce a resources pack uh, for schools uh, freely available on our uh, online on our website um, www.debatingmatters.com uh, and that tells you how we run debate how our format works and how you can replicate that within a school uh, or indeed just take the bits uh, of the format you like and all of our topic guide resources there must be about 50 plus now again are freely available online uh, for anyone to use in any capacity they want that sounds interesting so please do visit the website if you're interested in finding out more about debating matters on sunday the people of greece go to the polls in a snap general election while elections in relatively small european states don't normally attract much attention greece is different with potential ramifications not just for greek voters but for the future of the euro and even the eu itself I'm joined by Jeff Kidder, Membership and Events Director at the Institute and a long-term observer of Greek politics, to discuss Sunday's poll. Uh, Jeff, um, elections in smaller European countries don't normally attract a great deal of attention, so why has the Greek election assumed so much importance? Well, in many ways it is an unexceptional general election happening in a 
relatively small southern European country. But the reason Greece is, has such wider ramifications is because over the past five or six years, Greece has been held up as the economic basket case of Europe, if not of the world, and has gone through a whole series of uh, economic uh, d disciplines to try and put it back on its feet. And most especially, the European Union, um, and Germany in particular, many would argue, have used Greece as an example of a bad uh, e economy, one that needs disciplining, one that needs to go through various procedures uh, and really needs to be taught a lesson. So in many ways, Greece has been an economic whipping boy. And so now there is a general election there where some of the parties are saying if they come to power, they might turn their back on the years of austerity, uh, may, may possibly even put two fingers up to the EU or to Greece. Some people are saying that that's a possible outcome. It, it has much wider concerns and people much further afield, from Nigel Farage here to people in, in the United States and elsewhere, are looking very closely at what happens in the Greek election because it has much wider ramifications than what happens in Greece itself. OK, so let's uh, take, take a step back and look at the, the situation as it stands. So who is currently in power and um, what have they been doing in response to the guidance or direction of the, of the EU and of the IMF? Well, over the, yeah, for the past three years, the government has been read by, uh, led by Antonis Samaras of the New Democracy, who is a centre-right party. And they have a, a coalition government with, with a number of other uh, uh, smaller parties. To be honest, over the last two or three years, they have pretty much done the EU and IMF's bidding. Um, they've seen through quite strong austerity uh, uh, major cuts in social services. Um, certainly, uh, in, in many parts of Greece, social services are not recognisable as, uh, as such. Things have gone so far. Now there is an election, uh, and it's possible that people have had five years with no light at the end of the tunnel, uh, and it's quite likely that they'll vote uh, for a different way of doing things. Okay. So, so, so why why has this election come about? Well, Samaras has been in power for three years. He's had a wafer-thin majority, and his coalition's had a wafer-thin majority. And uh, Syriza, who are the left-wing opposition party, have been snapping at his heels for a long time, um, saying that there must be a different way of doing things than uh, bringing through all the austerity or all the cuts. And uh, large amounts, especially uh, Syriza's complaint, is large amounts of the money, uh, of the bailout money, which has been given from from the EU and elsewhere has been used to uh, uh, shore up banks, other financial institutions, rather than anything happening to materially improve the productivity of the Greek economy. Um, so Syriza have been complaining about that. Uh, Samaras uh, had enough, basically said put up or shut up, brought forward a presidential election, tried to get his EU former commissioner through as a safe pair of hands as the president. He failed in that task, and now uh, that's triggered a general election this Sunday. So perhaps we should say a bit more about Syriza, who they are, and uh, what, what the ramifications are if they get elected. Yeah, I, I think it is quite likely that they'll emerge the largest party. That's what the polls say, that's what the bookies say, although obviously the people will decide on Sunday. They are a, a fairly amorphous party of the left of the non-Stalinist left, there's still the Greek Communist Party in existence, 
who are predicted to get 5 or 6%, they're, uh, as communist parties go, are fairly uh, unreconstructed, which has actually served them quite well. And whereas most communist parties in Europe have faded away, they still have a, a solid base of support in, in, in certain areas. Syriza are formed up of a non-Stalinist left. It's a mixture of uh, people, welfareist ideas we'd be familiar with in the Labour Party, environmentalist Greens, kind of anti-corporate people from a globalisation movement, and also people who believe in non-traditional forms of organisation and whatever. So it's, it has a heritage that, that goes back further than the past few years, but really it's a, an amalgam of various left-wing groups that have got together to try and get into power. So what have European politicians been saying about the election? As is often the case with Greece, people outside have interfered and and. and caused a number of problems. Claude Juncker, who's the new EU Commission president, gave an interview on Austrian TV where he said there would be a real problem if the wrong result occurred in that presidential election, i.e. the EU Commissioner didn't get in, which he didn't get in. Obviously, the minute people outside from Germany or from the from Europe generally get involved and start telling the Greek people uh, who, who they should be voting for, that raises hackles and gets people's backs up and causes considerable controversy. Various other politicians and economists have spoken about it, although I think a three-line whip's gone out to shut up before the election on Sunday, this Sunday, and there's been less overt controversy, although the European Central Bank and various German politicians have made it clear, certainly for a German audience, that there is going to be no major change in the policy in relation to the EU and the European Central Bank uh, in, in in relation to Greece, uh, nothing dramatic will happen. Although obviously there may be negotiations, depending on who wins. From from the point of view of of Brussels, the the major concern is that that Syriza will lead a government that will throw out a lot of the austerity measures, and this this will lead ultimately to the destabilisation of the euro or, or Greece leaving the euro. Um, so, what do you think the prospects of that are? And do you think Syriza actually can hold together? as a government, because as you say, it's quite an amorphous collection of different parties. Um, I think the truth is that no significant force wants Greece either to lead the euro or the EU, either in Europe or in Greece. In Greece, there's a very strong uh, sentiment that the EU is very important. It's a, a link between Greece and the rest of Europe. That's the way it's seen. Uh, and the euro is seen as a, as a sign that uh, potentially Greece could be on an equal footing with other European countries, despite all the problems. So even within Syriza and in the opposition, with the exception of the uh, more maverick groups like uh, the Communist Party and the far-right Golden Dawn, there is n nobody in Greece who seriously talks about leaving the EU or the euro. But that's not to say that unpredictable things can happen. Syriza is an amalgam of different groups with all kinds of different interests. Uh, how long that'll hold together, I don't know. From the European side, presumably they will want to negotiate with Syriza if they come to power with a coalition, which is still a question mark of whether that will happen. But if it happens, they will want to negotiate. But EU foreign policy, if we look at Ukraine and elsewhere, isn't necessarily the outcome which people want, isn't necessarily the outcome which happens. And uh, accidents happen inadvertently, things can happen. So I think ac by accident, things may go wrong rather than by design. But I do think that is a realistic option. 
Okay, well, thanks very much for that briefing, Jeff Kidder. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. To get more of our podcasts and comment, or to find out about our forthcoming events, visit instituteofideas.com.